Welcome to The Grow Show, powered by Steel. On The Grow Show, we share ideas, tips, tactics, and insights to help you grow your landscaping business based on our team's 40 years of experience running a landscaping company and working with other owners and their teams to do the same. New episodes are released weekly on Wednesdays. Without further ado, here's your host, Marty Grunder. Well, hello, everyone. Another great edition here of The Grow Show, and we have a superb treat for you today. The gentleman on the screen with us is Mr. Ed Epley, and Ed has been one of my prime go-to mentors for over 25 years, and he's been an enormous influence on me, both personally and professionally, and, and there's only a few people I can say that about. I got a lot of mentors in the professional department, but in terms of some personal growth and the way that I manage, which is a heck of a lot better now than it was before I met Ed, Ed, welcome to The Grow Show. Marty, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy spending time with you, and I know that we'll have fun today, so thanks for inviting me. Well, of course. A few years ago, we had you with us at Grow in Denver, and you, as you always do, left, left the group that was with us there with a lot of thoughts things to think about, how to get better. You are what I would call a management guru. I mean, you just know how to make complex problems when that we encounter as leaders really very simple and, and reduce them. But before we get into all that, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ed Epley, because most people joining us won't know who you are, and tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you who you are today. Well, I'm a farm boy that I didn't know it, but it was an entrepreneur from the get-go. I started a 4-H project that turned into a business of selling breeding stock of uh, hogs to local farmers. And that set me on a journey to recognize I had the ability to create my own jobs at a very early, very early age. I got into advertising because I was also involved in radio and that really forced me to become somewhat of a disciple about selling and rules for how you work with people to help them make good decisions about whether or not they can and and should use your products and services. So that was important to get out of the way early in my career. And I was selling an intangible, you know, you sell radio advertising, it's it's a a broadcast and no one, you can't hold it, you know, you can hear it, but Anyways, it was it was a good experience to have that. And then I got involved with industrial and contracting or construction distribution. So I got exposed to every kind of business that you can imagine in the Midwest, five-state area, and contractors who would be working and selling to those businesses as well. So all along that way, I was involved with Dale Carnegie training because of my involvement with sales. I went through their program at a very early age when I was 22 and then became certified to teach their sales program, Marty, when I was 25. So that was something that I became focused on becoming the very best salesperson I could and recognizing it as a a discipline that you could master and that you could get predictable results with. And that was powerful to come to the realization that I could create something from nothing, if you will. I could knock on a door of somebody who's not expecting me or making a phone call and turn that into a conversation that could result in business. So that was, it was a gift to recognize that I knew how to do that before I actually had any idea about how to run a business. At the age of 40, I came to the realization that I should not work for other people. (laughs) 
And I also came to the realization that I shouldn't manage people because I had been doing both of those things. And I was a, I wasn't a bad employee, but I was not a happy employee because right. I didn't want to do things exactly per the rules or processes that were followed if they didn't make sense to me. And managing people, I came to the realization, is so hard because you have to care about the people you're managing and leading. And you have to tell people things more than once. I'm not patient. And as a result of that, it became clear to me that I was better suited to be an independent contractor or sole proprietor. Right. And so most of my efforts after age 40 put me in positions where I really didn't have to worry about either managing people or being an employee. I've been working with executives and their teams for the last 25, 30 years, trying to help them become more healthy, more aligned, more cohesive, less political. I obsess today in a way that you don't know, Marty, because we never got a chance to do this since uh, uh, the last time we worked together. But I obsess now about the meetings uh, people have. I obsess about what they talk about, what they don't talk about, and making sure that those the time that is spent in those meetings is highly productive. So that's the the work I do today. I, I go across the pond a couple of times a year in Europe, do work over there for Goodyear Tire and Rubber. I do work with companies like Steamboat Ski and Resort Companies, one of my big clients. BMW Financial Service was a client for 15 years. So I've worked with a lot of big companies, but most of the companies I work with are privately held, somewhere between the size of 20 million and probably $100 million a year. Right. Tell us a little bit about you personally. I know, but I'd like for folks to know. My bride of 41 years here in, in about a month will be is Fran. Yeah, she's she's my my Fran buddy. Is great. Yep. Yeah, she 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 was uh, a gift uh, given to me by God at a very early age, and she's been along for the ride and makes it so fun. And then we have a son Ben and his wife Jesse, our daughter-in-law, and our grandson Emmett that live out in Colorado. Ben's a geologist, works at Cripple Creek and Victor Gold Mine. And that's a fascinating business that that we could spend time talking about. It's another episode. And then our daughter, Tess, is in the area. She's a speech therapist and works with adolescent autistic kids, trying to help them to be more social so they can become employable. And we get to be with her a lot. Our son and daughter-in-law, we see them about every six to, six to eight weeks. It's great. Well, Ed, I'm glad you're here. I'm hoping I can get you to come back on a future episode of The Grow Show. There's so much that I have learned from you that I want to try to share with our followers. But today, I'd like to talk about workplace culture, because when I look at what I've learned the most from you in the last 25 years, I would have to say it is in that area. And culture, as you know, begins and ends with the people that you've hired. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on adding people to our teams, because the majority of our listeners here are, are landscape professionals, owners and leaders of landscaping companies. And finding and keeping people is, <laughs> it's our number one challenge. What wisdom would you share with us on the part about adding people and the dangers of adding the wrong person, the, the benefits of the right person? Talk to me. Well, the, the first of all, when you say culture, I think it's important for folks to know my definition of it. You don't have to agree with it, but this is the one that I use, which is our culture is the written and the unwritten rules for how we want people to behave. And then the second thing that I would add to that is the best way to know what your culture is, is to watch what people do when you're not around. Right. So that's the that's the best indicator of Beautiful. the kind of culture that you have. So those are those are a couple of things. 
when we go back to the written and unwritten rules, most organizations have a, an employee handbook and the employee handbook speaks in thou shalt nots. Right. And it, it's written probably for three to 5% of the people who need those rules that say you can't do this. Right. Shouldn't do this. The unwritten rules are the ones most people follow the most. And those are the ones that are established principally by either the owner of the business because of the shadow that she or he cast is so big. And they don't even know they're creating these unwritten rules, but people come to recognize, yeah, that there are these things that become either that people know you either obsess about or don't care about or don't want to talk about. So one way or the other, those unwritten rules are the ones that people pay the most attention to. When it comes back then to the culture that we're trying to create, that top executive team, for all intents and purposes, the top three to eight people that help you run the business are setting the primary pillars for your culture by how they behave, what they talk about, what they are interested in, how they handle success and how they handle failure. I believe people, I believe that people will do more to avoid a negative consequence and they will to achieve a positive one. I agree. So that means people are going to pay attention more to how you handle somebody screwing up than how they see you handle somebody being successful. We all talk about how we want our people to be decisive, entrepreneurial, and to you know, when in doubt, act. I'm not saying everybody that's listening to this podcast will necessarily subscribe to that. But by and large, most owners of of companies would rather people make decisions than not make decisions. However, too often when somebody that works for us makes a decision that was not the one we would have made, we either question it or uh, supersede it and counterdict it and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're terrible as executives at letting people fail and having to clean up their mistakes. So all of that comes back to, we've got to be real. That's a long way to get to the point that I'm trying to make, which is the people that you hire to help lead the business are the ones you have to worry most about in creating the culture that you want. Is more scrutiny needed the higher up we're inserting someone on the org chart? So like, if we're going to hire a, hire a sales professional, do I need to be worried more about cultural fit than if I'm hiring a laborer? Yes, in general, yes. Okay. I, I believe that. And clearly, anybody that's going to be in a supervisory role, you can't cut corners. So what would be the difference if we're interviewing between a question that I might ask of someone that's going to have more responsibility? Or, or how would you... How would you frame that? I mean, how how would you try to improve your chances for success on cultural fit? What are things we can ask? I don't want to take us down a rat hole here, but I think it's important to make sure that the audience understands this point as well. Our culture should be driven, should be set up to support the business model we're trying to operate and the strategy we're trying to achieve as opposed to what is comfortable for the owner or the operator. That's so, awesome. I get what you're saying. I hope everyone else listening, we probably ought to clarify it a little bit. Yeah. So often culture gets set up independent of the business model or the strategy. Most people say, I'm going to create my culture and then my strategy and business model will be created and, and right. maybe so, changed several times. Could I relate to this personally? Please, please. 
So we weren't growing, Ed. And in the last three years, we've tripled the size of this business. And it was because I had a stranglehold on too much. I love things. Yeah, just... I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> right. Well, you were telling me, it just took me a long time to finally figure it out. At age 51, it finally clicked. But I had a stranglehold on everything, not being tolerant of any mistakes. And if you made a mistake, it means you're incompetent. You don't care. People make mistakes. Like Seth here says, and he said to tell you hi. He says, sure. you know, his aunt would tell him that pencils have erasers for a reason. There's mistakes. <laughs> I know. And as I've loosened up now, I'm not, it's not a free for all here. That's not what we're talking about. Nope. But there were certain people, the way they looked and so forth, that I wouldn't even give consideration to hiring here. Way, way, way too rigid and way too judgmental in what I was doing. And when I loosened up on that, you know what happened, Ed? I got to know a lot more people. And I got to saw people that may see things a little bit differently than I do, but they helped us win. And they're right. wonderful employees, team members. I bet. So maybe that draws a little common story to what you're talking about, because I had a culture based on, and I was hiring to a culture based on a lot of idiosyncrasies that were not conducive to growing a business. Yeah. Your culture, if you think about it, what we're trying to create, Marty, with our culture is a path of least resistance for people to follow that should, as much as possible, make them want to behave in a way that makes it easier right. or simple for them to do their jobs in a manner that we would want. Right. Right. And, you know, at the end of the day, I often like to ask my students and audiences, would you want to work for you? And when I asked myself that question and answered it, what really started to happen was because of the age of my children and the jobs that they were going into, I started to realize, Ed, that I would not want my kids working for someone like me that didn't give anybody any slack to right. move around and make some mistakes and own their mistakes and get better. It doesn't mean we were allowing incompetency to go on or anything of the sort. It just was an, a major, and I don't have a problem admitting it, a major epiphany of mine to understand that I wouldn't want to work for me. And I had to create an environment here that I would want to thrive and feel appreciated and comfortable in. Right. I think uh, two things. Number one, for the audience and those of you that maybe don't know more, Marty as well as I do, Marty invested enough with the people that are critical to operating his business that they gave him the benefit of the doubt when he, when he was pulling on the reins too tightly whenever he would be judgmental right. uh, in a way that probably was counterproductive. They were still over willing to overlook that because they knew how committed Marty was to their success and the business success. So you bought yourself some loyalty, and I don't mean in a bad way, but you, by the investment you made in them and the the, the amount of care that you demonstrated, they were willing to overlook some of those failures on your part, mistakes right. on your part, I should say. Right. And give you a second or third chance. Back to how how do we find the right people? I think then just coming back then to that premise that we want to create this path of least resistance so people will behave in a way that's consistent with our strategy and business model. Then what you're looking for in the interview is to what extent do these people that are managing other people align with in terms of values with what that kind of culture would look like? So it's it's really important that you understand. I'm not talking about trust. I'm not talking about respect. I'm not talking about, right. you know, any of those things you see in typical values for cultures. Yeah, those, those are humans. Those are permission to play. That's right. There are two or three 
behaviors or values that are the foundation of what makes your business, your collection of people, who you want them to be? What, what will make you stand out and be different than the folks with whom you compete? So I think at, at Grunder, the example I would use, and I'm not saying these are right, Marty, these, right. these may not be the right pillars, but the obsession that you have for doing work at a very high level and doing extra things that, that go beyond what the minimum amount is that, that means the job was done right. successfully, those little things, that kind of, so, so if, if I was looking to hire somebody in your organization as a manager is tell me about how often and and in a way that you would go beyond expectations. Right. And what does it mean to do a good job in your mind? Give me an example of when somebody says you did a good job. Well, how did you, how would, what would that look like right. to do a good job versus an okay job versus a great job? And those kinds of questions need to, you need to elicit from them their thinking about what they would value, what would make them want to do what you know is essential to being the kind of business you want to run. Right. I hope that makes sense. It makes complete sense. Today, it's really hard to find people. Say someone has someone on their team that they think they should upgrade, but they see that some work is getting done and they feel that getting some work done is better than no work. What's your experience with settling for that? How do you find that? Because at the Grow Group, Ed, we're hearing this a lot. Like people are settling. They are backed into a corner. The employer doesn't have leverage. There's no one on the bench. I mean, I know the answer to the question, but I'm going to, I'd like your help and your wisdom on, on how you address that situation. Sometimes bad breath is better than no breath. Right. Okay. So sometimes having a body in a role is better than, even when it's marginal at best and has no capacity to be more than what it is, is better than not having the body. So in today's environment with 4 million, um, Mike Rowe is a a hero of mine. I love Mike Rowe. I love his podcast. And I believe he stated there's 4 million adult males between the ages of 18 and 55 that could be working that aren't and looking for a job. So, and, and even if all of those people came into the workforce, we still wouldn't have enough to fill all the jobs that we have open. Right. That's why the Fed's trying to get, you know, the interest rates up so they can get a unemployment, un, unemployment rates higher so that they slow down the inflation. That's a whole nother story. However, we are in this place where having bad breath is better than no breath in a lot of positions. So we have to recognize when we do that, we're making a compromise. We're saying that our values are for sale. We are saying that we're willing to accept something less than an ideal fit for this role. Now, at the same time, I've always believed that the best businesses are the ones that that can take average people and create above average results. Right. I believe a manager's job is to do that because we can't afford to pay everybody above average wages. So we have to, what we're, our goal is to look for average people, not, and and I, I know today some of the people listening are going, hey, I'd settle for average all day long. I can't find people at all. So I recognize that that's going on. One of the reasons you want your culture to be as great as you want it to be is you want to be an employer of choice. So what you want is for somebody to want to work in your business more than another another business not like yours. 
Right. So I'm going to say that again. You're really wanting people to take it to choose between working at your business over a a business that wouldn't be a competitor with you because that gives you a much bigger audience from which to draw. Right. In my opinion, that's that's what I'd agree with you. So I'm probably sound like I'm straddling the fence here because I I can do that in my role. I don't have to create the the jobs that, that you're trying to fill and I don't have to execute them. So all I can do is have to do is sit here and give advice. But that's the that's the position I think most businesses find themselves in today. I do know this. There's people like Cameron Mitchell in Columbus. And Cameron Mitchell is, I don't know, he's getting ready to open up his hundredth restaurant. Now, right. not all of them are in the central Ohio, but right. he's probably got he's probably got 25 restaurants here in central Ohio. Right. Somehow he gets them staffed. That's hospitality. That I mean, those are those are right. Not the highest paying jobs, but he makes opportunities and people think about that as a career that would never do that. People right. start out there going working part time and going to school and then they either quit school or graduate and still stay with him. Well, they do that for a reason. And they right. could work they could these are people who could work almost anywhere with the people skills and the work ethic that they have. So I think it's part of this is going back to what kind of business are we creating and what's the environment we're creating in there that would allow us to attract people that would otherwise not choose to work in our industry. I think you make some awesome points there. And one of the things that we're having a lot of discussions about in our peer groups, Ed, is we're analyzing where we're at and we're realizing we have people that helped get us to one level and they can't get us to another. And Cameron Mitchell is a great example. They've got great systems. I often say processes and systems enable ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's kind of along the lines of what you said there. And we're telling our clients, Ed, that the, the economy probably is going to take a dip. There is going to be some things. And I've even jokingly told some of my clients, why don't you like start, you know, miserable Mondays and bring all the food there and let all your competition go there and don't you show up and why they're all sitting around complaining about how bad things are going to get, go call on their clients. because. I'm joking, but I just think that, you know, misery loves company and and where there's a will, there's a way and you can figure it out. When I think of Ed Apley, when I close my eyes and I think of you, the thing that you told me that has stuck with me forever, and I use it when I teach, I use it with my team here. And that was a question you asked me, I probably 24 years ago, and we were looking at my work chart and you said, Marty, given what you know about this person now, if you had a chance to rehire them, would you? Right. And I remember saying, well, I don't know. And then I remember saying no. And then you said, well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> Where did that question come from? And can maybe you share it in a better context than I did? Is Because I have found that really helping me. It, it's not only helped me here, and it's helped me see, like, I got a C player in a position that I need to have an A player. And I'm either, if they're a cultural fit, I need to take them into an area of the company where their capacity is a better fit, or I got to get them out of here. Where'd that yeah. question come from? Just talk for a couple moments about it, because it continues to make an impact on me. I'm sure there had to be somebody that I've done work with that that either posed that same question, or because we were talking through something, it, it allowed me to come to the, the realization that we needed to ask that question about an individual that was that was in front of us. And, and it was just, it's rooted in this premise. 
the premise being how committed are you to doing what you need to to help this person be the best right version of themselves right how how far are you willing to go with this to to make this person's performance what you believe they're capable of and if and if you think about it from the context of well you know if i had an opportunity to 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 the, their job was open and they interviewed for it would you hire them for that right. role knowing what you know now, now about them because that is to me the best litmus test of how committed you are to that individual right well and and you made me realize that i needed to work a little bit harder on some people and and we had numerous success stories yes yeah i think the marty 2.0 which was there was Marty 1.0 and right. there was Marty 2.0 after we worked together for a while. And I know you're Marty 3 or 4 today. because Probably Marty I, 8. I, I, but... I, whatever. But I know you're still a better version of what you were yes. when, when our work ended. Having said that, I think that you've always been committed to trying to help people be their best selves. However, because you knew you had made some hiring mistakes and you felt like you owed people you're um, so right. You you owed them an addition, a continued loyalty and effort beyond which they probably deserved. Right. Because you truly weren't at that point at, that you and I were talking about this particular individual. You you were no longer fully committed to them, but you still felt loyal to them because you thought you were supposed to. And so you were investing energy and time and in some cases money in somebody that you in, in intuitively knew couldn't do the job. Right. And I felt guilty that I hadn't done a good job setting expectations right, getting them coaching. Yeah. And you know, you know what, Ed, it it I, I have some very bad memories of some people that I had to let go. And I had to shoulder the responsibility for part of their lack of production. Yeah. But I think of two, and I'm not going to name their names, I'm still friends with two of them and they're thriving. Okay, this wasn't the right place for them either. Yeah. And 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 they were being loyal to me and I was being loyal to them. We were both losing. I well, usually what you know, fear of the unknown right. is a is, is a primary driver for people in that situation, regardless of whether you're the boss or regardless of whether the the employee, because you're thinking about, well, you know, this person does this much right in their job. Right. And and so it's not like they're terrible at their job, but then, you know, if I say, well, how much upside potential does this person have? I'll get a variation of, you know, they got some, but that's when you ask them, well, knowing what you know now, would you rehire them? If the person says no, if the manager says no, well, that tells you they really don't believe right. that even this person is going to get any exactly. better in a significant way, or they recognize they're just not a good fit. That, that, it's not right. that they don't have potential, but that person shouldn't be in this role. And so the, the, you can't rely on the individual who's not right for the role to recognize or have the courage to, to say, I'm opting out. So a big takeaway from listening to you and another thing that I, I realize in listening to you, what I've learned, Ralph Nader, who's a bit of a crackpot, but he said the function of leadership is to create other leaders, not followers. And I think in today's Twitter world or Instagram world, whatever you want to define it as, people get hung up on how many followers I have. 
When I look at the people that are most valuable to me at Grunder Landscaping Company and at the Grow Group, and now a third company, Grunder Green, they are people that have the ability to create other leaders, not followers. They're people that have the ability to create people that can go take another team and go and win with them. And that's where, when I look back on my career, the people that didn't, that weren't working out, they weren't able to develop other talent around them. They couldn't figure out how to get people to do what they want and needed them to do and what the company needed them to want and do and still have them love them. There, there was just a lot of con- conflict going on with that. Does that make sense? Sure. I gave you a definition for culture a little bit ago. I'm, I'm going to give you a definition now of, of, of why a manager's job exists at any level. So you could be a frontline supervisor, team lead, and you could be the owner, CEO, president of the company. But your job exists principally for two reasons, which is to produce results and grow people. And growing people is not purely preparing them for advancement. The, the, the truth is every individual in your organization every year has to become three to 5% more productive than they currently are. Right. And the reason they need, Peter Drucker came up with that, that, that number because the fixed cost of doing business goes up by three to 5% every year. Right. So in order for the business to remain competitive Amen. and to stay, stay, stay where you are just to keep pace, then your productivity has to go up by three to 5%. The vast majority of managers don't explain to their people what that means. They just simply say, you need to be better. That makes so much sense. They or or. We need to produce this much more results. Go faster. Yeah, they, they right. we need to, the bar has been raised, but they don't explain it as an improvement in productivity. And and then, by the way, the definition of productivity is an output given so much input. So the 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 what we're really talking about is for eight hours worked, if I get three to five percent more productive, then I I will get three to five percent more work accomplished in the same amount of time. And that's really what we're asking people to do. Well, how do they do that? Well, that that comes back to changing skill or behavior in most cases, because they're already most right. people are giving us sufficient effort. It's just we need to get them to use that effort more optimally than they otherwise would. That could be a change in a system or a process. It could be better tools. But ultimately, everybody has to get better every year. So one of the things I when you talk about leaders creating other leaders, I used to operate under the premise, Marty, that there was management and there were leadership. And those were the two rudder, the two uh, pedals on the plane that were the rudders. I no longer believe that. I now believe there's professional management. And under that are six disciplines, which are leadership, being strategic or strategy, people development, organizational performance, structure, and culture. And and so if, if I say anything controversial today, it's probably this. You can be a great leader and not be a great manager, but you can never be a great manager without being at least a good leader. I agree with you completely. So, so to me, what we should be talking about is not developing leadership in people. What we should be trying to talk about is with the people that are supervising, those who have to produce results working through others, which right. is what what the operational definition of a manager is. If you have to produce results working through others, then your responsibility is to be the best professional manager you can be which means you, by default, you have to be at least a good leader. Right. Which means you're going to be developing people, which means right. you're going to be making people better than they already were. That means you can take an average person and give it above average results. So 
I, I hope I didn't take you down a, a direction. No, no, I'm, no, go there. I, I'm, I'm energized. I always energized by talking to you. And some of this is stuff that you've had to beat into my head. I love your perspective. It's very hard to argue with it. Let, let's tie a bow on this. We're with Ed Epley on The Grow Show. One of my mentors, good friend, awesome teacher. A lot of big time companies rely on Ed to help him. He's helping us here today. Let's say I'm an owner in my late 30s, early 40s of a landscaping company. And I've enjoyed listening to this podcast. I like what Marty and Ed are talking about. What are some action items we can give them going forward on how they can scale and have a culture that is conducive to scaling and conducive to us feeling fulfilled, not only monetarily, but but mentally as well, that like we're doing good work? Well, if you're if you're that late 30s, early 40s, I think number one thing I would ask you to do is sit down and create your exit strategy. What 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 does success look like in terms of you when whenever you want to get out of your business, whenever you want to leave it, what does that look like? And most people that own businesses don't get to go out of business on their terms. Great point. So I, I think you got to ask yourself at age 50 or 60 or 70, whenever you decide you no longer want to do what you're doing, you've probably proven yourself that you have a job. But at some point, if you want a business. So we're talking about painting a vision. Yes. Right. Uh, but but also when you say, I want to go out of business at this point in time and I need the business to look like this, you know, have this much revenue right. with this much margin, this many employees. So, yes, right. it is a vision. But but I need it to look like that to give myself the options that I need to go out of business on my terms. So right. that's that's job one. And it, and it's not just the financial things. It's the mental, the physical. It's it's the sense of accomplishment. It's what I want to be able to tell my kids, what I want to be able to put my head down on my pillow at night and say, yes, I did. Yes. Right. And 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 also thinking about, you know, usually the business is worth more to an outside buyer than it is to an inside buyer. Right. If you really have a business, a right. statistic that I think a statistic that most of your audience might not be aware of is that only four tenths of one percent of all businesses get to ten million dollars a year in revenue. Wow! So wow. less than less than a half percent of all businesses get to ten million dollars a year, and ten million is kind of the threshold at which you ought to have enough infrastructure and systems and processes and people that are good managers that that thing could operate without you. And that's that means you've got something that would be worth something to somebody else. Right. So having said that, this is a shameless plug, but I'd say buy my book. Let's be right. clear. Yeah, your I, book I, is I, fantastic. I, and we'll make sure we put a link to it in the, in the Grow Show notes. Yeah, and because I, I believe you need some kind of framework about how you're going to operate the business. And it's not just having the right strategy. It's not just being a good leader, but you got to do all six of those things. And when you change one of them, it impacts the other five. Right. And, and so people need to recognize that it's not, it's not enough to know what tree to plant or how to take care of it or what equipment to buy. Right. The technical aspects of your business have to happen if you're going to be in the business, but that's just, again, the ante to be in the business. The thing that's going to differentiate you against your competitors and allow you to create the exit strategy that you want for yourself and your family and loved ones and your people is really about how good can you be as a professional manager. Ed, I have absolutely loved being with you today. You're a gem. 
I'm forever grateful that I met you. I can't even remember how I met you now, but I'm I'm really darn glad that I did. You you mean a lot to me. I'm I'm reminded of that in this conversation today. How can all of our followers get a hold of you? We'll put a link to buying Ed's book. I highly recommend it. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what, the first couple people that share this link and tag us on it, we'll give you a copy of Ed's book because we've got a box of them here. Ed, how can people get your book? How can people get a hold of you? Easiest way to get the book is on Amazon and it's Let's Be Clear. And then uh, my name is Ed Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y, ed.epley at severalthousand.com is my email address, the best email address to reach me. And LinkedIn, I'm there and glad to connect with people there. Ed, thank you. Thank you for everything you've done for me. And, and thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today on The Grow Show, powered by Steel. Thank you, Marty. Always a pleasure. You're one of my favorite people. Thank you. We're going to play some golf this summer, okay? Count on it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grow Show. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and head to growgroupinc.com for more information and resources to grow your landscaping business. A special thanks to the folks at Steel, whose support makes this podcast possible and whose reliable handheld power equipment makes our jobs easier daily. We'll talk to you next week.